You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Dazed and convicted. Pool party radio. Show King. The Devil's Advocate. The Projection Booth. Awful Flips. Pod Awful. Support for the Projection Booth Podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. Come rain or come shine. And what I'm thinking is I'm sitting here now, well, maybe this is my big break. This is my big chance. You know what I mean? You don't just walk on to a network show without experience. Now, I know it's an old hackneyed expression, but it happens to be the truth. You've got to start at the bottom. I know. That's where I am, at the bottom. That's a perfect place to start. So will you please give your warmest greetings to the newest king of comedy... Rupert Hopkin. His name is Rupert Pupkin. He lives in a world of make-believe. Oh, Jerry, I love this guy. Always coming up with these great lines. I love him. I love him. Nobody can remember his name. Mr. Pipkin. Mr. Pupnik. Mr. Puffer. Rupert Pupkin. P-U-P-K-I-N. But by 11.30 tonight, the whole world will know that Rupert Pupkin is the new king of comedy. Robert De Niro, Jerry Lewis, in a Martin Scorsese picture, the king of comedy. And now, from Detroit, it's the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Robert St. Mary. Is that a shotgun in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me? And joining us tonight is a man whose name is often mispronounced and misspelled, Skizzik. I want to see my pride and joy. (laughs) We're talking about Martin Scorsese's 1982 film, The King of Comedy. The film stars Robert De Niro as Rupert Pupkin, a frustrated comedian and celebrity stalker. He's convinced that Jerry Langford stands between he and success. Played by Jerry Lewis, Jerry Langford hosts a nightly talk show. He's also stalked by Sandra Bernhard as Masha, a sexual terrorist. The film follows Rupert as he becomes increasingly deluded about his role in Jerry's life. The film is 32 years old, and we're going to get into some spoilers. So if you haven't seen The King of Comedy, go ahead and turn us off and come back after you have. It's out on DVD and just came out on Blu-ray, so you have no excuses. So if you're still with us... Skiz, as our guest, when was the first time you saw The King of Comedy, and what was your initial impression? I think the first time I saw it was around 1990. I was taking a course on Scorsese, and we were watching his films one at a time. Of course, in 1990, he didn't have nearly as many films as he does now. It was one of the films that I enjoyed the most out of the class. In fact, I made a lot of enemies in that class because at one point we were supposed to pick our favorite Scorsese film and write a paper on it. But we had to tell the class which one we picked. And I stood up and said, after hours. And everybody just jumped on me. No, it can't be after hours. It's got to be 
taxi driver or mean streets or raging bull. And I said, sorry, it's after hours. Like, well, what's your second favorite? And I said, King of comedy. And they're like, ah, you you idiot. Like you're not supposed to like Scorsese for his comedies. I was like, I'm sorry. He's made two perfect comedies. That was my first introduction to King of comedy. I didn't, didn't see it until it was about eight years old, but I loved it. And, uh, I actually hadn't watched it again until recently. <laughs> so I saw it a few times back in the early 90s and then managed to, to go a couple decades without watching it. I saw King of Comedy during high school, I think. It was one of those, I like Goodfellas, so I'm going to go rent every Scorsese movie I can get my hands on. That was the last time I saw it. I haven't seen it since, so it's probably been about almost 20 years since I've seen it. And I liked it as much, even not more now, than I did when I first saw it. For me, I think I was going through a Scorsese phase as well, probably mid-90s, I guess. I had seen a bunch of them before, but really started going back and seeing, you know, Alice doesn't live here anymore. I don't think I've ever caught up with New York, New York. I think that's one of the few uh, Scorsese's I haven't seen. But that's also when I saw After Hours for the first time and King of Comedy. And I'm right there with you, Skiz. I think After Hours is brilliant, and I know that Rob does as well. Yeah, it's really well done, and it's also interesting, if you're a fan of Scorsese, to know that right after King of Comedy, he was to do Last Temptation of Christ in 1983, a week before they were going to start shooting it. The uh, studio at the time, Paramount, that had it shut him down due to protests, and then he went on to make After Hours because he needed to do something. Yeah, and there were two really solid comedies right in a row. King of Comedy, it definitely says almost more today than it does back in 1982 when it was out. I mean, the whole idea of this like reality TV culture that we're in, this instant celebrity that we have. So it's uh, kind of crazy the way that it really was very, very prescient back in 82. I'm sure that there were some things that it was speaking to. I know that 82 was just a few years after, um, just a few years after Mark David Chapman um, murdered John Lennon, and I'm not sure when the whole John Hinckley thing went on, but um, obviously that is going to speak quite a bit to uh, Martin Scorsese <laughs> as far as the whole Jodie Foster's army kind of thing. So let's talk a little bit more about the plot. I gave a little bit of a synopsis up top, but I really want to uh, dive a little bit more into Rupert, and I love the way that Scorsese mixes reality with fantasy and then there's even a question that i have as far as when you guys think that the fantasy might begin uh i think it starts pretty early in the film with him just imagining that he has a talk show but you're you're talking about the fantasy of his relationship with jerry i'm wondering if it goes all the way to when he gets in the car with jerry i don't even know if that is necessarily real Right. I think the only hint that that's real is that Sandra Bernhardt mentions it, unless he's imagining talking to her. But I can't imagine talking to her. I also think that that's real because of the attitude that Jerry has. We find in all the fantasy scenes that he's overly nice. He's, you know, always glad handing him and stuff like that. But when he's dealing with him in so-called reality, he's much more to the point and at times even sort of mean (laughs) in terms of that. I, I love there's a great line in there. Where he's like, you know, so being something like, so did uh, being famous make you like this? And he's like, no, I've always been like this. And I, I really like that, that that sort of helps to set the, the, the tone of reality is we know when he's interacting with Jerry, when Jerry's kind of, you know, 
like how anybody I think would be as if they were descended upon by this guy. One of my favorite things about the film is, is De Niro playing a character who is the hero of the film, but he's a total annoying pest and yet likable. I can see why this film didn't do as well at the box office as some of Scorsese's other films. It's funny because to me, he's just like a stone's throw away from Travis Bickle. He's like the funny version of Travis Bickle. You know, he's totally deluded, kind of working in this whole fantasy world and everything. New York is, is a character in King of Comedy as much as it is in Taxi Driver, but it's a much darker version in Taxi Driver than it is in The King of Comedy. But as it goes along, he gets more and more twisted, and he does confuse this whole reality and fantasy more and more. There's one fantasy where he and Jerry are having this conversation, and he starts talking about coming up to the house and everything. Next thing you know, Rupert's going up to the house and having this very uncomfortable scene where he's brought his um, quote-unquote high school girlfriend, this girl that he was infatuated with apparently in high school that he's trying to get back with together. He's one of these guys who never could leave high school behind, it seems. It's sad, but it's uncomfortable just the way that he goes in and you know puts himself into Jerry's life. When he's saying to Jerry, like, well, where are all the other people? We, I thought we were going to have this big weekend up here. To me, he believes it. He thinks that that conversation that he had with Jerry at dinner or whatever it was in his fantasy world is really what's happening. You know, I could have the both of you arrested. <laughs> you could have us arrested. Well, of course you could have us arrested. I mean, there's no way that we can prove that we belong here. He's great. When he comes up with an idea, he's terrific. Really, I never thought of that. You should have. You know what we can do? We set up a story where you invite all your friends out for the weekend and you throw them all in jail. <laughs> That's terrific. That's terrific. <laughs> What's the matter? Lighten up. Let's get to work on that after we work on this, of course. How did you get here? We walked in the door. What do you mean, how did we get here? Jerry, what's the matter with you? How did you get here? I think you're upset. I'm going to leave my material here. We'll talk later. You've got more important things to worry about. We'll just take a stroll around, wait till lunchtime. Did anyone ever tell you you're a moron? You know, Jerry, I want to tell you something. Ordinarily, I wouldn't allow anybody to speak that way about Rita. But since it's you, I know you're only kidding. <laughs> He's a real character. I think at times in this movie, I get the feeling that he knows the difference between the fantasy and reality. He just doesn't care. I don't think he's so deluded to believe that all of these things that he envisions are actually real. I think that they're daydreams. I think it's kind of like sitting in class and kind of wondering what it would be like to, you know, date that girl or be on stage with that band or something like that. I, I don't think that he's that far gone because of the way he can navigate both of them. I was trying to figure out what he does for a living. He, he At one point he says he's in communications, but we never see any hint of a job making me wonder if perhaps he's uh, on disability. Yeah, I'm wondering as well, too. Yeah, I was trying to pick that up today when I was watching it again, and I really couldn't figure it out. It seems like, I mean, he he must have some money to have that like little studio that he has down in the basement with the audience wallpaper and everything. And I, for me, that's one of the most powerful shots of the film is when he's standing in front of this audience 
delivering his monologue and the camera's pulling back and back and back and showing all of the people that are in front of him all trapped in this display of laughter, this tableau of laughter. And he's there, you know, moving his arms and giving his monologue. And I love the way that we don't get the monologue until right near the very end of the film. I found it very fascinating. I watched some of the extras on the DVD today and there's a whole monologue of Jerry's that they cut out of the film. It's kind of the beginning of his show. They have a little bit of it in the movie, but they kind of get out of there pretty quickly. And I have to say that Jerry's material in his monologue really isn't that much better than Rupert's material in his monologue. I won't say that Ed drinks a lot, but he woke up in a Long Island motel next to a duck. Now, what worried, what worried Ed was the duck was smiling and smoking a cigarette. <laughs> Don't try and make up. Uh, will you excuse me a minute, folks? I really have to do this. I wasn't able to get to my dentist today, and the dentist happens to be watching the show. Check it out, Doc. <laughs> do you see a couple of thousand dollars worth? Sure you do. I'm glad I kept my appointment with the proctologist. Now, um... <laughs> Well, Rupert's material really isn't any worse than what I see on TV today. <laughs> That's kind of the weird thing to me is that it's really not awful. So I was, I was kind of glad that it's not awful, but it's also a little surprising that he does seem to have a, a little bit of talent, but I don't know if he's got more than that two minutes worth of material or if that's it. Talking about like the fantasy and the reality, I kind of wondered how much of the ending was his fantasy does, does he actually get you know not to give you know, we're going to get into spoilers but he gets out of jail and suddenly he's a comedy superstar where is he really like what what's his act when he gets out that whole ending sure i mean everything after he gets arrested to me feels like 100 percent fantasy with him on the cover of every single magazine and just yeah it, in that way that the uh announcer just keeps saying his name as he's you know announced to come onto stage and now ladies and gentlemen the man we've all been waiting for and waiting for <laughs> would you welcome home please television's brightest new star the legendary inspirational the one and only king of comedy ladies and gentlemen rupert pupkin Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for Rupert Pupkin. Wonderful. Rupert Pupkin, ladies and gentlemen. Rupert Pupkin, ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for Rupert Pupkin. Wonderful. Rupert Pupkin, ladies and gentlemen. never says anything just comes out and just is standing there and all the adulation i i love that scene but yeah for me it's it's 100 percent fantasy see but i want to embrace it as reality because there's the cynic the very very cynical part of me that wants to believe that we would embrace and the media would embrace this so much I can see that happening today where that would actually happen i mean some of the weird things that have gone on like 
you know, having someone on Real Housewives of wherever and their claim to fame before that was that they um, managed to get into a White House dinner and basically scam their way into that. Next thing you know, they're on this Real Housewives show. And I'm sure that there are tons of other instances of that. I mean, goofy-ass contestants who are on Flavor of Love getting their own show and then going farther than that. It's just like, how the hell does this happen? But So yeah, I think in today's world, Rupert Pupkin would be coming out on stage for real. But I think in 1982, I don't necessarily know if that was the intention. The thing that's great about this film is it is left open to that kind of interpretation. Uh, I don't believe it is so spelled out for you that you have to accept sort of one version of whatever this reality or fantasy is. And I think that that's what's, what's really great about it. Scorsese does such a good job with the way that this is blended. And the screenwriter, Paul D. Zimmerman, who apparently is no relation to your friend, Paul Zimmerman, Rob. That's right. And if you want to hear the Paul Zimmerman that I know, listen to the Reservoir Dogs episode. This Paul Zimmerman... Uh, only did a couple screenplays, but yeah, this, he did this one. And um, going back and reading the original, it's right on there. So they they did a really good job of the way that uh, they adapted this and everything. And unfortunately, I don't think that he only was with us another ten years after King of Comedy. So it's uh, he only did uh, I think one more screenplay that we might have seen, which was uh, Consuming Passions, and I only really remember that one from the um, from the video box cover. So it was a Jonathan Price film, and whenever I saw the cover, I always thought it was the Who's Killing the Great Chefs of Europe, but it's not. It's a different movie. The thing that's interesting about this script, and I didn't know this until I was watching some of the extras, as you were talking about, is that the script actually... You know, we were talking about how this is related, possibly related or could be inspired by such things as the assassination of John Lennon or the attempted assassination on Ronald Reagan. And this script actually was written, to my understanding, in the early 70s and that Robert De Niro read it either around the time of Taxi Driver or just after and brought it to Martin Scorsese and said, let's do this. But then it took like another seven or eight years for it to finally happen. The attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan took place March 30th, 1981. So this was after that. And I was kind of surprised that they didn't really talk about that in the extras too much because the way that he kind of tied that in and, you know, was obsessed with Jodie Foster. And I mean, I, you know, who, who isn't, right? I know I was. In the summer of 1980, Hinckley read a story about Jodie Foster. The 18-year-old actress was taking a sabbatical from Hollywood to attend Yale University. So Hinckley told his parents that he was going back to college, but at Yale, not Texas Tech. And so he makes up a whole elaborate ruse to his parents about how he's going to go to Yale for a writing class. That doesn't exist. And the whole time he spent stalking Foster, he finds out who, where she lives, slipping notes under her door. I found it interesting that Scorsese really wasn't interested in the script until after Raging Bull, when he became much more of a household name. I think Scorsese could walk down the street and nobody would really recognize him that much until after Raging Bull, and that's when he kind of had to go back and reassess his place in the world. I'm still waiting for that to happen thanks to the projection booth, but I don't think it will. I recognize that voice. So what did you guys think of Masha? And I, I kind of wish that... Uh, her name would have been explained a little bit, but I love that it's not Marsha, but Masha. I didn't know 
at the time I saw the film in the early 90s, I could not figure out who Sandra Bernhardt was, like what her claim to fame was. And then I realized now that, well, this was her first major film. This was her first starring role. She hadn't really done much before that. So maybe this was the movie that put her on the map that made everybody but me understand who she was. <clears throat> I just knew her as this sort of kooky guest that kept showing up on Letterman. So, yeah, when I finally saw her in a movie and I just thought her performance was amazing. I mean, I, I, I thought it was really daring. I She creeped me out a lot then. I mean, I watch it now and I just kind of laugh. But at the time I was like, oh, I would not want to be jerry lewis in this scene that character reminds me a lot of and if this was written in the period that it was like i had heard in the extras that this was something from the early mid 70s it kind of reminded me of valerie solanus sort of character who got in with andy warhol and and factory and was trying to get andy warhol to look at her plays or writing and all this stuff and then shot him and an attempted assassination attempt and uh, he survived that but it kind of reminded me of, of that kind of person but that person was much smarter than the masha character although i i did sort of see some similarities in terms of trying to talk to someone who's famous and get them to do something for them and things like that she's an interesting character the more i think about it too because like Rupert, we don't know what she does for a living, but she's got this amazing apartment. It doesn't seem to have to go to work. Maybe she's like a uh, trustafarian, as they've been called out here in Aspen. When we talked to Larry Cohen for the Bone episode, he talked a little bit about um, how he helped give Sandra Bernhardt her big break and that she was his wife's manicurist. So I'm not sure exactly when that was, but yeah, she then somehow got involved with uh, the Richard Pryor show and I know she even did a voice in the Shogun Assassin redub of uh, the Lone Wolf and Cub movies. So, And she does have a very unique voice. She was also somebody that kind of freaked me out when I was younger. And I think her kind of sexual ambiguity when I was a young man kind of confused the hell out of me <laughs> so to be perfectly honest but I, as she's gone along in her career and as she's done some of her one woman shows that i've seen on cable great stuff and i really have grown to appreciate her and plus she was in one of my favorite movies hudson hawk oh yeah the only thing i remember her from was back in i don't know it was the late 80s or early 90s she was hanging out with another michigan export uh madonna her and Madonna seem to pal around quite a bit. What's she doing now? I haven't seen anything from her in a while. She's still doing stand-up, going around the country. And um, over at her website, they've got a uh, bunch of her dates that she's doing. And she's not giving us uh, interviews over here. So we we asked several times, and unfortunately, she uh, wasn't here. And we even tried to play the Michigan card, but it didn't work exactly. out. Exactly. We said, hey, you're from our neck of the woods. Yeah, whatever. Screw you guys. I felt... Completely impulsive tonight. Anything, anything could happen. I have so much to tell you. I don't know where to start. I want to tell you everything. I just want to tell you everything about myself. Everything you don't know. Do you like these glasses? Crystal, beautiful. I bought them just for you. I don't know. There's something about them remind me of just the simplicity of them. But if you don't like them, if there's even an inkling, even a doubt in your mind. <laughs> I kind of wanted to talk about the opening a little bit because I took a decent amount of notes on the opening and the opening, which you kind of did your own little version of at the top of the show is the opening for the Jerry Langford show, which I was happy to see Ed Hurley 
And I was just I about know, to say that. <laughs> which I don't know if, if you know who Ed Hurley he is, but he was a voiceover guy. He did a lot of newsreel voiceovers and things like that. But probably to us younger kids, he's known as Francis's father in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. He also, before Johnny Carson took over The Tonight Show, when Jack Parr had it, he was the sort of Ed McMahon on that version of The Tonight Show, at least for a few years. I don't, you know, that was before my time, but that's what I read. I didn't know that. I, I knew him as the voiceover guy on the newsreels because being a documentary filmmaker, I've sat through a lot of newsreels and his name is at the end of most of them. I love that opening where we do have that whole exchange and Jerry getting into the car and everything. And the title shot where the credits are being shown. I don't know about you guys, but it's so reminded me of the way that it's framed and everything, at least on my DVD version of it. It reminded me of a television screen, the way that the the kind of bluish light is coming through the window of the car and the car window kind of has that same three, four aspect ratio. And I think it's Masha's hands are up against the, the screen as it were. And Rupert's face is on the other side. I don't know if you guys thought the same thing, but I definitely saw what looked like a television screen at the very beginning of the film. I could see that. And that, that brings up a, uh, something we were talking about earlier. Since it's it's Masha's character that we see there, we don't know what happens to her at the end. Like this, this launches Rupert's career, but what's it? Or at least it does in his head. But we don't see what it did for her career if she had a career. Yeah, it's weird that she is not in his fantasies whatsoever. She's a very good ally to him, though they do fight like cats and dogs yeah. when they have Jerry kidnapped. Which I love that whole exchange that they have. Am I going to stand here holding this thing till next Shavuos? You going to make some decisions here? You going to make some moves? You going to knock off the talking for two minutes? Come what about on. when you put the sweater on him? Was I bothering you? Yeah, it took one minute. Huh? You have a long night Hold it. You I have something to, to say to You've him. got more than enough to say. Both. You're driving me nuts. Just a minute. Can you be quiet for one goddamn minute Just and let me rest with this gun? Just You're driving me crazy! You have not shut up since we walked into my house. You this is my house. This is my domain. Jerry is my guest, and you you're my guest. And you're lucky to be here. You get to change in my house. You get to dress. You get to get you, your head together for the show tonight. You, why don't you give me a little break? Why can't you give me a little break? Wait, shut wait, up! Why don't you shut up? I did give you a break. I listened to you talk about that sweater for 20 minutes. Worrying about the sleeves. How's it look? The color, this and that. Did I say anything? I didn't make it for you. I made it for Jerry, and it looks fabulous on him. It's interesting that she's not there at all. It's mostly for Rupert. It's all the people from high school. I love that it's his high school principal coming back and apologizing to him. (laughs) I wanted to talk a little bit about Jerry Lewis. What are your feelings on Jerry Lewis, Rob? Well, Jerry Lewis, for me, had always been the king of Labor Day telethon. And that's what I remember him from mostly as a kid. And then, of course, you know, watching some of his more well-known films. I always enjoyed him as... You know, as a, as an actor and, and as a filmmaker, I can't say that I'm a you know an obsessive fan or I have some huge knowledge of Jerry Lewis. He's just always been someone who's kind of been there. But in the later years, as I've read various things and seen various things, it seems like he's not someone who's taking old age uh, in a nice way. It seems like he's getting kind of bitter and and snarly in his old age. That sounds about the same for me. I. I first knew about him because of the telethons and i uh explored some of the martin lewis films and uh you know nutty professor and all that stuff and thought he was hysterical when i was a kid but it was one of those things where the older i got the less funny i i thought it was for me i think um he's very hit or miss 
I think that he's got at least three films that I would consider to be absolute, I won't say genius, but masterpieces. The Bellboy, The Nutty Professor, and The Ladies' Man, to me, just kind of stand head and shoulders above everything else in his filmography. Uh, I can see why the French love him. Uh, I think I touched a little bit about this in the Day the Clown Cried episode. Just the whole idea of he was basically doing things with the camera that the French were just learning how to do or just seeing how it's done and doing this very new wave filmmaking, but on American soil. And I can definitely see why they're big fans. And also he was kind of parroting uh, the Jacques Tati films a little bit as well. So it was, I think it was kind of a, um, almost a reassurance to them. Like, Hey, here's this guy who's doing the same thing that we are. But as far as his acting, I think that, his acting in this one, I've never seen a performance like this from him. In movies like Arizona Dream and Funny Bones, I mean, he gave not similar performances, but he was much more of a straight man in those films, and he wasn't doing the Hey Lady kind of voice and everything. But um, to me, he really broke with the past when it came to what he was doing in King of Comedy. And just to see him playing this role was just shocking for me when I saw it the first time because I did know him as this kind of, I don't know about you guys, but with the Labor Day telethons, he always just seemed so sweaty and smarmy. I, I don't know if I just caught him in the later hours of the telethon, but he just always seemed like this real kind of like lounge lizard kind of guy, somebody I would not want to spend any amount of time with. I don't think I would want to spend any time with Jerry Langford either, but um, it, it was a different type of unpleasantness i get that his character in here is and and it's done really easy it's done really simple just a few you know a few images and i get the idea that when he's not doing the job uh his life is very alone he's very kind of isolated and there's this scene where after the you know we we're talking about the uh, the car ride in the beginning where Rupert gets in he goes home and he has dinner by himself and like his dog sitting on the chair next to him and he's just there by himself and then they go to the house you know later where he's got this big house i guess maybe out in the hamptons or something and it's just him and his servant who runs the house the guy who runs the house and that's it you get the feeling that he really doesn't have much in terms of family or relationships or friends or anything it just sort of seems like he does a job he goes home he does a job he goes home and that's it and it is sort of a very solitary and and um and quiet life for him almost you know kind of very sad too by that, the way it's played especially in that dinner scene i love the scene that comes a little later where he's walking down the street and he enjoys the recognition but as soon as somebody asks him for something his whole mood changes and that lady yells at him, you know, you should get cancer. And it's just like, it, it says a lot about him, how like he, he loves that recognition, but don't bother him about it. The other thing that's interesting about the kidnapping in here that I realized is if we look at sort of how Masha and Rupert are when they're talking about Jerry and their interactions with him, with her being like, she loves him and all of this stuff and him and then Rupert being very, let me get you this tape and all of this stuff and I'm going to be in your show. It's not so much about the person. Like nobody ever sits down to like actually have a conversation with Jerry as Jerry. Like tell me about your life. It's Jerry as object. 
it's like it, it's almost like a jewel heist or something. It's like, ooh, it's the Pink Panther. We have to get the diamond, you know. And that's really what it's about. It's about this thing as opposed to it being about this person. And I like sort of how the film takes this idea of celebrity and makes us understand that it is this thing. It's not necessarily this person and how people sort of covet that thing. Yeah, I definitely see that, especially when they're at the house when um Rupert is at the house with his quote unquote girlfriend and he's going through and pointing out all of the different pictures and relating them back to the individual shows and everything. It's almost like he's a trivia buff about Jerry Langford, the persona, but not necessarily even Jerry, the person he doesn't ever get to know Jerry, the person, just like you're saying. And and I love the way that when Masha and Rupert have him at their place, that they're speaking about him like he's not even there. This whole idea of, you know, well, I think he looks good this way. No, I think he looks good that way. And it's like, he's, he, you're right, he is an object in that case. And for me, it kind of goes a little bit further, the whole idea of Rupert with his uh, autograph book. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm not a big autograph guy. Like, if I meet somebody, I'm not really all about getting their autograph maybe it's kind of a nice thing every once in a while but i'm not like this person who kind of can separate out the star from you know can can kind of just capture the star by having their autograph especially if it's something that i wasn't there for because i know people will buy autographs and trade autographs and all this and it just seems a little creepy to me i don't know about you guys yeah, I never really got it. I, I I think what's replaced it today, though, is the uh, selfies with celebrities, which makes a little more sense. It's something to look at, you know, and it shows that it was you that was that met this celebrity. But yeah, just a, a signature on a piece of paper. I never quite understood why that was so important. The only time that I was ever interested in that was when I was in high school and I would go see bands. You know, I thought that was kind of interesting, but usually it was coupled with the idea of having a small conversation, you know, like, Hey, I really like this record or, you know, that was pretty cool. Like, you know, what are you guys working on next or something like that? I was always much more interested in having a conversation with someone whose work I respected than I was about just getting a photo or just getting them to sign something. Because to me, that was just so, so ephemeral while you can have a conversation with someone and you can always, you know, kind of play that back in your head. I mean, I've, I've had opportunities to have conversations with several people who I really respected, just sort of like bump into them either at film festivals or, you know, I was at a party or something like that. And I always, you know, treasured that much more than I would some, some autograph. Although I do have a really cool autograph, uh, a couple that I still have. So Yeah, I think the only autograph that I have that really means a lot to me is Rudy Ray Moore's. And that's just because I have the whole evening and everything that goes with it and it's you know on one of his albums and so like really kind of that to me kind of encapsulates like so much stuff that went into this evening of you know being made fun of by rudy ray moore having my friends made fun of by rudy ray moore hearing the signifying monkey you know live in person and it was just such a great time and then that is just kind of this object where i'm just like oh this was so much fun 
but it's not one of those like, oh, I gotta get Rudy to sign this for me, oh, and I gotta get his his name on this piece of paper. It just seems so kind of weird to me. And as far as the whole selfie thing goes, I actually know people that kind of like they don't necessarily trade in selfies, but they have almost like this, you know, hey, I am somebody. Look at all these pictures of me with famous people. That's almost as creepy for me, where it's like people's Facebook pages where it's just page after page after page of them with celebrities. And then when they're talking to other people, it's just like, Oh, Oh, I know this person. And it's like, no, you don't necessarily know this person. You have a picture of yourself taken with that person. I have no context as to how you did this. You could have run up and said, can I get a picture real quick? I have several pictures uh, with Mike white. And um, I just want to let you know that I have no idea who this man is. But I look pretty good in them, so I'm not taking them down. You just reminded me that I did ask for an autograph several years ago at a screening of Mighty Wen. I got Christopher Guest and Michael McKean to autograph my Lenny and the Squig Tones album. But there's a story that goes with that, though. There's you going to see them, and then there's them being amazed that you even had that object, right? Yeah, I just really wanted to meet them, and that gave me an excuse to go up and you know spend a few seconds talking to them. Skiz, tell me more about this paper that you wrote for your Scorsese class, and how did it go over once you finally had it? I wrote a paper on After Hours, and that didn't really go over so well, but I wrote another paper about the presence of punk rock in Scorsese films. And of course, everyone in the class thought, what are you talking about? And I wish I could remember more of the details, but I went through all of his films and picked out signs that Scorsese was aware of punk rock. I know this sounds silly now, but you know, at the time, I was in classes with people that never listened to the Sex Pistols or the Dead Kennedys. I know one of my examples was in After Hours, the, the Bad Brains uh, song popping up in the soundtrack. But in King of Comedy, it was various famous extras from the world of punk rock and new wave music that most people wouldn't have recognized. But in one scene, the camera pans, and I thought, that looks like The Clash. And then I read the credits, and sure enough, it's The Clash, along with Pearl Harbor from Pearl Harbor and Explosions, and Ellen Foley. You know, this was post-Meatloaf and pre-Night Court. At the time, she was Mick Jones's girlfriend and had a couple albums out, and you know they were kind of popular on college radio. And then Don Letts, who's the filmmaker. He's done a lot of work with The Clash. He made the punk rock movie. And, you know, I was just real impressed that I'm sure Scorsese didn't cast the extras, but whoever did got some pretty cool extras in the background. The, uh, the, the, well, I mean, the other one, but this was 1990, you said when you had the class, of course, is the most obvious was the uh, Sid Vicious My Way at the end of uh, Goodfellas. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I really don't remember all the uh, examples I came up with, but, you know, it seemed like there were a lot in uh, most of his films after a certain point. We're going to take a break and play an interview with Sean Levy, the author of King of Comedy the life and art of Jerry Lewis after these important messages. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me who you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be... Deadly weapons. And body counts. Body count. The map. 
mathematics of murder and menace. The BBNBC podcast discusses lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, and SoundCloud by searching for BBNBC Podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly on the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents. And you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know. It's messed up, right? Return of the Living Podcast. I think it's enough movies to officially consider her actress extraordinaire. Exactly. Actually, it's a, quite a long list. Sarah Nicklin. Sarah, how you doing? Uh, great, guys. How are you? What was it about acting that made you decide this is what you wanted to do? My reasons for wanting to be an actor really had absolutely nothing to do with acting itself. When I was little, I was completely obsessed with the child star Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Oh my god, he is so hot. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on. So you were basically my cousin. When I walked into my cousin's room, it was Jonathan Taylor Thomas posters oh, yeah. as far as the eye could see. I knew that if I met him, that we would just fall madly in love with each other and we would get married. That is like yeah. my favorite reasoning to, uh, to get into acting ever. Find them on iTunes.com and Stitcher.com. Don't have Stitcher? Download the Stitcher app from the Apple Store or Android Market. Also, find them on Facebook.com, as well as on Twitter at 245TStudios. You know, I was looking for a little excitement, but I was worried about privacy. And then I found out about Vibrators.com. Vibrators.com has the perfect products for women, and men, and couples. They have helpful suggestions and information on how to make sure you get something just right for you. Plus, for over a decade, Vibrators.com has never played around with your privacy. While other dot-coms make their money by selling your information, Vibrators.com never has and never will. And when you use the special code BOOTH, that's B-O-O-T-H, at checkout, you'll receive free priority shipping on any order. That's Vibrators.com. Get a little excitement in your life. Tell me more about Sean Levy. It sounds like you have been writing about films for a long time. Yeah, I started freelancing for a local newspaper in Newport Beach, California in 1986. Um, In 88, I joined the staff of Box Office Magazine. In 89, I joined the staff of American Film Magazine. American Film went out of business with the January 92 issue. And at that time, my then wife and I chose to move to Oregon. And um, starting that fall, fall of 92, I began freelancing at um, the Oregonian newspaper. And I started writing books. For about five years, I freelanced at the newspaper and worked on multimedia and I worked at Nike for a little while, but I was writing books and freelance film writing the whole time. And then in 97, I was hired full-time at The Oregonian. And I stayed at The Oregonian from 1997 till 2012. And in that time, I've written, I just finished my seventh book. So I left the paper and I've been doing some freelancing, some teaching at Portland State University, and I'm going to write more books faster. 
Well, let's go all the way back to your first book, which was King of Comedy, The Life and Art of Jerry Lewis. Why Jerry Lewis? There were a couple of other uh, ideas that I had first. And, you know, you have to you have to find a subject matter that um, for, for which there's an empty shelf on the library or a hole in the shelf. Jerry had not been written about. I was looking around for subjects in 1992. Jerry hadn't been written about. He did an autobiography in 82 or 83, and there was a book about him and Dean Martin about 10 years before that, which was not very um, worried about facts. I saw that there was an opportunity for, you know, a, a, a kind of fact-rich, soup-to-nuts biography of an important showbiz figure. And there are many such people for whom that could be said. But with when I when I got the idea, when I was inspired by something to think about Jerry Lewis, I immediately thought of about six things that were interesting about Jerry that I knew could sustain a narrative. The, the physical comedy, the borscht belt roots, the partnership with Dean Martin, the reputation as an auteur in France, the muscular dystrophy work, the period in the wilderness, um, the, the, the film King of Comedy, this strange uh, juxtaposition between the screen Jerry and the seemingly um, uh, very different real-life Jerry. So I knew all of those things would be interesting enough to sustain a biography. At the time, um, there was a publisher in New York who wanted me to do a book on Spencer Tracy. And, you know, what are you going to say? He has uh, the marriage and affair you know, his marriage to his, his, his wife, I believe she was Dorothy, and his long relationship with Catherine Hepburn, and a lot of great movies, but there were none of these other things that recommended him. And over the years, I've come to realize that every, every life, yours, mine, Spencer Tracy's, Jerry Lewis's, is like a clothesline. You know, it's a string, one, one thing after another, a chronology. But what makes a biography, a book, interesting is what is hanging off the clothesline. And in the case of Jerry Lewis, there were very interesting things hanging off the clothesline. I knew that right away. I had a similar experience um, a few years back when I chose Paul Newman as a subject. Right away, I knew there were seven things about Paul Newman other than being an actor that would be interesting to write and read about. With Lewis, he seems to have all of those different things that you're talking about, and they all have, I don't want to say they're very discreet in the way that they're grouped in his life, but there are different periods that he goes through as he's going through. Did you find some of those easier or more difficult to research and write about? Well, yeah. I mean, there was a brief period of time where Jerry entertained the thought of working with me, and we had about six hours of conversations. You know, you, you, you run into a thing where... If you ask the fellow, you get his answer on that day. But if you do research, you can find out what he thought closer to the event or um, in some cases, in Jerry's case, things that had never been revealed. His archives at USC had his thoughts at the time of these things. And one of the things I learned writing that book that I've since put to use is that we all of us have multiple threads going at the same time. Even before there was a concept of multitasking, we were all multitaskers. If you freeze your life at any given moment, there's more than one narrative. Um, there's, you know, work, there's relationships, there's health, there's money, there's long-term projects, short-term projects, things that come up intermittently in your life. 
I had to learn how a to to dig into those things, b how to how to uh, manage the data once I you know found it, and then c how to how to how to mount it, how to how to tell the stories. So on that book, it was it was kind of a learning process, and in part that's why the book is so damn long. It's still the longest thing I've ever written, and it's it's it is hard, you know, when when you are looking at someone's private life, their marriage, their relationship with their parents and their children. You know, who are your witnesses, who do you trust? When you're looking at, um, say, a filmmaker's career and you look at, or a film actor's career, there comes a point when they become famous, after which doors kind of close behind them. It's very easy to find people who knew someone when they were a kid because those people want to talk. Hey, I knew Jerry Lewis when he was nine. But the people who knew him after he was famous might be more reticent, you know, and you have to you have to battle that very frequently. So in the case of, say, muscular dystrophy, nobody at the Muscular Dystrophy Association at that time had anything bad to say about Jerry Lewis. They, they love the guy. You know, they they were famous because he was famous. Um, since then, the relationship has, has soured. So. You know, at, at, at given moments, various of those strata, those slices that are simultaneous in our lives are easier and harder to, to reckon with. You mentioned that you had spoken with, with Lewis for the book. What was your relationship like with him as you were doing this project? Jerry had a, a, a long history of tussling with the press, and I knew that going in. I think when I wrote to him in early 1993 asking for an interview, he wanted to size me up. I was living in Portland. He was, at the time, he was living in his yacht in San Diego uh, in a harbor. And um, I went down there and we had a very long, very, very friendly meeting. We exchanged phone calls after that. We sent things back and forth in the mail. I would find something and that struck me as very uh, unusual from his past and send it to him, you know, hey, remember this? And he'd ring up and tell me about it, that sort of thing. But as I say, he has has always had a, a tumultuous relationship with the press. And in the time that I was working with him, I I knew, I knew that at some point the 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 sky would fall, that he would change his attitude toward me. He never requested to quote unquote authorize the biography. That is to say, he never asked that he be given the opportunity to read and edit my work. But he was always, you know, there was always some reserve. There was always some sizing up. And that went on both sides. I knew, as I say, from his history that he he had a short fuse with family, with colleagues, with employees, and with the press. And during the time we were sort of doing this little dance, um, he was being written about for in Vanity Fair. Um, by Leslie Bennett's, and she was doing a story about how um, former muscular dystrophy poster children were sort of demanding that the MDA get rid of Jerry and get rid of the whole, um, as they as they termed it, the pity approach to fundraising. You know, oh look at these poor children that can't help themselves. Um, we have to do everything for them. And Jerry got wind of this, and by the second time I went to San Diego. His entire tenor had changed. In the course of a three-hour sit-down, he got testier and testier, and finally he exploded at me, swearing, name-calling, and um, attacking me. And he went like in salvos, almost like 
he would get a second and a third win. And, you know, this is in front of an open mic, a tape recorder that was going. I left, and we had a few exchanges after that, but never more than a minute or three at a time. I don't think I heard directly from him. Oh, no, no. After the book was published, he sent me a note he got from a doctor in Lawrence, Kansas. He was on tour with Damn Yankees and had played Lawrence, Kansas, and his wife took ill, and he went to the doctor, and doctor, you know, treated his wife, and Jerry paid with a personal check, and the doctor wrote to him saying, it was such a privilege to meet you and your family. I'm not going to cash this check. I'm going to frame it as a memento of having met <clears throat> such a great um, entertainer and humanitarian. And Jerry sent me a copy of this letter with a note about, you, you see what my life is like? What have you accomplished in life? Which was kind of astounding. I mean, if you think of it, if you and I got that note from that doctor, we would say, oh, how nice. <clears throat> and Jerry is like, you know, that fucking Sean Levy, I'll show him. That was the last I heard from him. He would have loved, I'm sure, to have sued me and my publishers over the book. Um, but we were extremely scrupulous, knowing that he was antagonistic toward the project. We spent dozens of hours, three, four dozen hours, going over the manuscript sentence by sentence with libel attorneys and providing, you know, both audio, tape, and paper documentation of anything that, you know, he could bring an action for if it were not true. And in the end, the worst things in that book are direct quotes from Jerry Lewis. It started out as a, a suspicious relationship. It became an angry relationship. And it was a blessing to me in my career because I learned the laws of libel right from the start. Not, not so bad. I've had, I've had worse lessons. Just thinking about this whole, the check thing, that's something that, you know, it, it would be something nice that you get and you just kind of hang on, but to actually go out and broadcast it, yeah, it yeah. just seems so And this typically poor Jerry. doctor in Kansas, Jerry's autograph sells for like one quarter of what that check was for. He could have had four Jerry Lewis autographs and cashed the check. What did you find while you were doing research on the book that you found most interesting? Ooh, uh, well, the single, the single most interesting thing was the papers that he donated to USC. Um, there were, I don't know, a couple 60, 70 bankers boxes plus huge ledgers. And, you know, he, he, um, had audio equipment in his offices, tape recording business meetings, and he would have those transcribed. So for instance, I found like a 50 page transcript of a conversation between him, Bill Richmond, his, his screenwriting collaborator, and Mel Brooks about the, um, the screenplay for The Ladies' Man. And in those papers, there were memos and, you know, free writing and letters and a mash note to Stella Stevens written during the uh, making of, of uh, The Nutty Professor. It revealed many things. First, you got the data that was actually in these papers, and I went through virtually every piece of paper. But secondly, it indicated to you what sort of personality you were dealing with, what you know, what his mentality was. You know, he was a pack rat. He was he was he was obsessed with detail. You get these um huge thick reports from the Paramount Pictures um just exhibition office about how his films were performing at these or that theater. And Jerry, you know, I look at this and I say, I don't need to read this. I would just flip through it. And then suddenly I would see notes in his hand. 
And he's like wondering why the box office is so bad in, in Biloxi. Just just an incredible, um, I don't know if you, if it's type A, the personality I'm describing, but a, a kind of, you know, uh, ceaseless detail orientation that, that was really amazing. Because, again, we're, we're putting it in the context of, you know, um, Stanley the bellboy or, or, you know, these characters he plays who are such klutzes and, and schlemiels. And here he is, you know, the man behind the curtain, um, you know, with an account, uh, you know, eye, eye shield over his hat, head looking at these ledgers and writing memos. And it, that was really amazing to me. And it was a, a treasure trove. I mean, it had material going back to the Martin and Lewis days. So it was about 20 odd years of just, just, uh, incredible backstory on, on his filmmaking, his TV work, but also just his psyche and where his head was at and all that time. Before you decided to write this book, I know you said you had like six things in your mind that come to mind when you think of Jerry Lewis or at that time that you thought, were you a big fan of his before then? Had, were you familiar with his films or, or what was your relationship like with him as a fan? Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't a fan, like um, a collector or a fan who had seen all his movies. I grew up, I was born in 1961. When I was a boy, he was still making films. And he always made, you know, he made a point up until 1969, all his films were family-friendly films, 70. Um, the first film that wasn't like, it's for kids, but I don't know why kids would want to see it, was Which Way to the Front?, so I, I was familiar with his movies. They seemed always to be on TV in New York growing up on Saturday mornings or, you know, after school. And I was very much a fan of the telethon. The telethon was a big event in my family. My, my parents were big Sinatra, Tony Bennett, Judy Garland, you know, that era of showbiz fans. And here was this program that was live, that was 24 hours. It was the last Sunday before school started up again. And they said, oh, yeah, you can stay up as late as you want. And the show was crazy. You know, we're talking about the, the, the beginning of the telethon, the, 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 as, we, as it became known. Even though Jerry had been doing muscular dystrophy work as, as, late as, as early as the late 40s, the heyday of the telethon is like 65 to 78. And that was my boyhood. So that was very big to me. Although, you know, I, there, there was such a different character sitting on that stage on the telethon from the fellow in those movies that I couldn't reconcile the two. And, you know, it's, 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 it's like a matter of taste. Some people like the vinaigrette, some like the, the goddess dressing. I wasn't a big fan of his style of humor. I came to appreciate what he was doing. Um, later on when I was writing the book and I could see, you know, his place in the grand continuum of film comics. But on the day I, the, the idea popped into my head, I wouldn't say I was a Jerry Lewis fan. I, I just was familiar with him because he was such a huge entertainer when I was a kid. How many hours of Jerry Lewis material do you think that you actually had to sit down and watch? Oh, I saw every every movie he made that I could get my hands on him. I missed one or two at the time. I was working... Um, the final manuscript was finished in 1995. Maybe if I flew to L.A. and went to uh, the U UCLA archives, I could have gotten to see a couple of uh, smaller films, Way, Way Out and um, Visit to a Small Planet. There were maybe three or four total that I missed, but I found everything. I, um, I did not watch and could not get my hands on every telethon. That, that would have been, you know, torture. Um, not because, not because of Jerry, just because, you know, 
you'd be watching literally hundreds and hundreds of hours of you know the same sort of material, you know, and Charo and Gary Lewis and the Playboys, Jack Jones, you know, God bless them all, but you know they weren't really important to my work. So yeah, I, I, and I saw him on Broadway in Damn Yankees. I made a trip to New York to see that. There were no DVDs involved in the writing of that book. So I didn't have anything like, you know, director's commentaries or anything like that. But And then I watched a lot of films that he influenced or was influenced by. I looked at uh, you know, Harpo Marx and Fanny Bryce, Pierre Takes, the, uh, the French comedian who was ju- just had all his work re-released by Criterion, uh, Harry Ritz and the Ritz brothers. You know, pe- people who would have informed him so I could put him in that continuum of screen comics. But... You know, all of that, um, transcripts of my interviews with him, um, transcripts of the other interviews I conducted. It was, it was, it was a shit ton of work. It sounds like it. Yeah. This would have been right before that whole DVD era kind of came to the fore. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I'm, I'm grateful that I missed it on this particular project. Of course, Jerry held the rights to his DVD, uh, releases for a very long time. So it was actually, um, relatively late that the complete or nearly complete Jerry catalog has been available. And I'm still not sure if everything I haven't looked, but I'm still not sure if some of these films I mentioned, don't give up the ship and, you know, a visit to a small planet. I don't know if those are available for home watching. Last I knew visit to a small planet would just show on TCM and it's not available legitimately, but I could be wrong. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm saying. You know, he, he was very busy. He was making two or three films a year for about, 18 years you talk in the book about the way that jerry and television really didn't get along for a long time other than the telethons what do you kind of attribute that to you know it's it's a difference between uh film and tv as media um some people are perfect on tv and they don't translate to film um one of my favorite examples is uh daniel j travanti who was so compelling on hill street blues and when that show was over, he was like, oh, this guy's going to go into movies. And he never did. Andre Brower, great TV actor, hasn't been you know, a hit in movies. I, I'm not sure John Hamm has been a hit in movies. And I think that's because you know, some people, we want them at a certain scale. And some people, we want them in our homes. And some people, we want to feel like overwhelmed by their presence. And some people, we want to keep them at a remove. Frank Sinatra was not a hit on TV, but he was a movie star. And I think Dean and, and Dean Martin was, was a hit in both media, but particularly on television. He was in the t- Nielsen Top Ten for the better part of a decade. I think that Jerry's personality, when he's not in character, is um, edgy. And I don't mean that like in the sense of like edgy as opposed to safe. I mean edgy as in has sharp edges, you know, and I think Frank is that way. Dean is warm. Dean is soft, cuddly, masculine, but but not not threatening. And Jerry Jerry seemed on his TV shows, and I did watch several of episodes of his short lived 1963 show, and then some of the later shows he tried. There there was a nervous energy to them that that you you could see why people didn't like having this in their home at eight o'clock on a Thursday night. Whereas when you choose to go to a movie, you're saying I'm into this. I want this. I'm going to go have it. And I'm going to let it wash over me, and um, you know I'm going to look at this guy thirty feet tall and he's going to make me laugh, and that's what I'm in the mood for. You know, whereas TV, you know, you flip the channels. You're choosing between two or three things, and you're letting these people into your home. 
So they have to have a kind of warmth. Um, movies, not necessarily, you know, people go see things in the movies that give them, you know, a thrill, whether it's a, you know, like a, an action movie or a slasher film or, you know, and stuff that you, you would watch it on TV, but it has a different, it has a different savor. You know, I, uh, as a film critic, I often told parents who were worried that something might be too intense for their children and called up to ask, I'd say, well, you know, wait till it's on DVD and then show it to the kid there. You can stop it. They can leave the room. I mean, you know, you have options. TV is much more under our control, and sometimes it's hard to accept certain personalities through that medium, and I think he had that problem. I mean, the telethon was a unique thing in a number of ways. Um, it had a beginning, middle, and end, so it had a narrative. You know, will they break last year's record? Um, and it had this this phenomenon of being 20 hours, 24 hours, and, oh, my God, what shape is he going to be in at the end? And it was also a weekend when nobody was watching TV. It was Labor Day weekend. It was your last chance to go to the beach or the lake or get out of town before school starts and you can't afford the time. So I think, I think it, it, it was a very fortunate um, thing that he hit on. It was the only time I think he ever managed to make TV work for himself. The story you tell in the book about him doing basically a telethon just for an audience of one is one of the most remarkable things. Oh, that little boy blue? Yeah. I like to remind people that without Jerry Lewis, most of us would never have heard of neuromuscular disease. Most of us would not know what a telethon is. They may not even exist. And most of us would have not heard of, you know, the, the, the idea of a poster child, which we use as a joke now in popular culture. Um, all comes from Jerry. He has raised literally billions with a B and with an S in money for the Muscular Dystrophy Association. And I believe, I truly believe that for 60-odd years, he has given some portion of every day of his life when he hasn't been like in a health crisis to his work for for that cause. Um, so, yeah, the idea that he would get um, NBC to string up a closed-circuit network that would um, – Put on, as you say, a telethon for one person, a little boy who was in a hospital, I forget, in the Midwest or, or New England. Um, but that was one of those things that when I uh, – any, anyway, he, he got you know his famous celebrity friends. and They did a couple-hour show for this kid and his parents and his, his doctors and nurses. They didn't air on TV. They were the only people who saw it. Um, and that was one of those things where I sent it. When I discovered it, I, I was like, holy cow. And I sent the clippings that I found to Jerry, and he told me a little bit about it. Um, you know, because, you know, you and I forget things from our lives. Imagine if you had a life as full as his, you know, um, with so many incidents, meeting presidents and kings and, you know, making 70 movies. I mean, you forget stuff. And he was, he was surprised and happy to be reminded of, of that event. And, you know, I, I was really excited because I thought I had found the aha. This is the thing that made him, um, like, uh, you know, pledge himself to muscular dystrophy. Um, but no, it wasn't. It was, it was late, later in the game. He had already begun his work with, with uh, that charity. What was your appreciation of uh, Dean Martin going in and coming out of the project? Well, Dean, everyone loves Dean. While I was working on Jerry Nick Tosh's biography of Dean Martin appeared, the magisterial biography of you know, Dean Martin. I mean, you know, here I am trying to write my first book and some guy drops a bio of Dean Martin that looks like, you know, a prose poem, reads like a prose poem. 
um, filled with information. Tasha's was gracious, shared some of his research material. Um, but, you know, I, Dean didn't, he wasn't Frank, you know, he wasn't like obviously the Enrico Caruso and Bing Crosby of his time, the greatest popular singer. Um, and he wasn't a great actor and he wasn't, you know, he was a sidekick, it seemed to me, but I was wrong. I, I didn't understand Dean. And um, Tasha's helped explain him to me, this this character who created, um, you know, sort of his, his immigrant parents' American dream out of this this very strange opportunity to be a star in showbiz. Um, his masculinity, I mean, Elvis Presley, when he first came to Hollywood, went out to Dean Martin's house and just stood outside the gate and was afraid to ring the bell because he was so in awe of Dean. I didn't, I didn't appreciate him, and... I have worked Dean Martin into every book I've written. He's, he's my good luck charm. Um, I don't believe he's... I'm currently finishing a biography of Robert De Niro, and I don't believe Dean is in it. So I'm breaking my streak. But he parlayed, you know, a certain set of gifts more than, you know, Jerry and Frank were world beaters, and they were going to show... They were only children, and they were going to show everyone, you know. And Dean was like, yeah, man whatever i'm there let me know what time you know curtain is i'll be there and i I love how when uh, the rat pack were supporting john kennedy um the new york times actually took a moment to note that dean martin was not officially endorsing a candidate and he was the only member of the rat pack who didn't make the trip back east to appear in the inaugural gala that frank produced that's dean he was who he acted like. Um, of course, you know, you develop a persona and it, you know, it's hard to say after a while, someone like, um, Chris Walken or, 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 um, John Malkovich, like where, where the persona ends and the real guy is. And after a while, it doesn't matter. I, I think Dean achieved that very early in his career. <laughs> what did you think about the work that, uh, Jerry and Frank Tashlin did? And what was that relationship like? Tashlin is Jerry's, um, you know, guru as a uh, filmmaker, and um, Tashlin's um, career as a uh, director. You know, I, I truly think his his best work is with you know one or two films that I like really well that he that didn't have Jerry in them. But you know, Tashlin had been a children's book illustrator and a cartoonist, and he um, an animator, and he um, he found in Jerry the equivalent of, of an animated character. Um, so you have maybe my favorite Martin and Lewis movie is Artists and Models, which was um, the first picture Jerry made with Tashlin. And he saw how Tashlin constructed scenes and constructed gags. He, he learned from Tashlin on that level, but he also observed Tashlin in his dealings with studio bosses and in particular with Hal Wallace, the producer of... Um, half the Martin and Lewis films and half of Jerry's solo films till about 1965. And Wallace's papers, by the way, the, uh, I talked about Jerry's papers, Hal Wallace's papers, which are held at the Academy library are just as rich in Martin and Lewis and Jerry Lewis material. And, uh, Wallace learned the trick of recording and transcribing his meetings from Jerry. So after a certain point, you know, you had running transcripts that, that were in conflict with each other. It was great. But Tashlin is a key figure in understanding Jerry as a filmmaker, um, not as a man, not as a 
not as a business dude, not in all his uh, other endeavors. But I think, you know, when it came to making movies, conceiving movies, conceiving sequences and gags and learning how to frame and cut and score a film, Jerry learned from Frank Tashlin un- undoubtedly. Yeah, I was very surprised in that recent special um, Method to the Madness of Jerry Lewis. I don't think Tashlin gets a mention. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, Jerry's 87, and people want to celebrate his 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 longevity. 87 or 88? What year is this? I think he's 88. 89? Was he born in 25? I can't recall now. I think people want to celebrate his longevity, so you don't necessarily touch on all his 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 mentors. I mean, they made Martin and Lewis made movies with a lot of bum directors, and I, by bum, I don't mean like I'm not you know guys like George Marshall and and. Um, People who just were, were, you know, studio employees who made, you know, four or five films a year um, could be wonderful men. But as filmmakers, they were sort of, you know, cookie cutter guys. And I'm sure Jerry learned from them. And I'm sure Jerry learned from, you know, he was fortunate to break into movies at the end of the studio era. He could have a crew that was his film after film after film after film. Um, the only person who's worked like that in recent years uh, in American movies is Clint Eastwood who kept hiring the same department heads. You get guys who've made 35 films with Clint Eastwood. And Jerry did that. So I think in celebrating his his, his longevity and his, the full spectrum of his life and career, Tashlin is, is easily forgotten. But, you know, Ta- Tashlin, any, any serious student of cinema and trying to find where Jerry Lewis's ideas come from, Jerry might want to point to Chaplin or um, Keaton, but really Frank Tashlin is, is, is the guy. I once heard a story that Jerry had different offices around the country and that each one of them was set up to be almost exactly identical so that he just would have ease of going from, say, Los Angeles down to Florida and being able to move from one office to another. And it was as if he had never even left. Do you think that there's any truth to that? It's plausible and it's not. Um, he, uh, his, his, his main offices at Paramount and in his home were technological marvels of their day with closed circuit TVs and recording equipment. And, you know, Jerry had the best of everything. He owned a radio station at one point and he had a, a, a hard wire um, connection to the radio station so that if he was sitting in his house or in his office, he could interrupt the disc jockeys and have conversations on the air. So it's hard to, for me to see how he could do that in New York or Florida or Chicago, the places that he'd be likely to, you know, on the same scale. But, you know, he, he, he travels with like, you know, it's, it's almost like a joke, you know, he travels with like 20 pieces of matched luggage and he, he was such a, such, such a collector of stuff. He had, you know, huge storage facilities, you know, until, until the 1980s with everything he'd ever touched saved um so it seems possible you know given that aspect of his personality but i i think i i i hadn't heard this but i haven't heard literally everything about him on the other hand those offices that he had in in um in pacific palisades and and uh on the paramount lot were one of a kind you couldn't reproduce them very easily the thing I find fascinating about Lewis as well is this whole, all the different personas. You know, you were talking about that kind of edgy persona, like his real life is what I get from that is the closest that we're going to get to the real Jerry is kind of that sharp edge type person. 
because there's kind of that, you know, the goofus person that he was doing with Martin and Lewis. And then he kind of moved into almost like this more of like a lounge lizard kind of persona. And then he embodies both of those with uh, uh, the Nutty Professor, which was very fascinating to me. I make the argument that at the time, um, people thought he was slamming Dean Martin, that Buddy Love was a parody of, of the Rat Pack. In my mind, Buddy Love is Jerry Lewis, uh, much more so than Professor Kelp. Buddy Love womanizes, berates people, overdresses, acts superior, um, fancies himself a crooner. I mean, one of the things about that movie is Buddy Love is grotesque, but we're to look at. You know, he's he's got makeup on his face, like you know, not. I'm not talking about the makeup to take off the shine of the, the lights, which every everyone on camera would have. I mean, like he looks like he has eye eyeshadow on. And lipstick. He's, he's, he's overdone. The professor is this kind of inner little boy, but Buddy Love is who this guy was, you know? I mean, as I say, the worst things that are in the book about Jerry are in Jerry's words, direct quotes. And, you know, his confessions to boozing and womenizing and gambling and those sorts of things are much more in line with Buddy Love than they are with any of his other, um, characters. And I think in, that's one of the, uh, one of the great tensions in The Nutty Professor is that, you know, he aspires as a comedian to be this sympathetic, sad sack character, but there's this man inside who's this other fellow who's the antithesis. And whether he knows it or not, he's kind of psychoanalyzing himself in that film. So you talked about Jerry's time in the wilderness, and there was that period between 72 with The Day the Clown Cried and the early 80s where he kind of had a little bit of a renaissance. Where do you see the king of comedy fitting into the kind of return to form of Jerry Lewis? That's telethon Jerry, sort of if we had to name a character, although he does have the exploding scene, which I got to witness in real life, where he, he tells Rupert Pupkin, you know, so did Hitler, which is something that Jerry says all the time. Jerry, Jerry could be Godwin's law could be Jerry Lewis's law. He resorts to Nazi and Hitler uh, analogies, you know, practically when he's ordering toast. I think that, you know, the, the, the story of the making of King of Comedy, Jerry was like their 10th choice. They wanted Johnny Carson. They wanted, um, Sinatra. They wanted Dean. They talked about Orson Welles and, and they kept circling and someone said Jerry Lewis and Jerry had been out of movies. He had made two films since, uh, the, the, the crash of, uh, the day the clown cried, hardly working and cracking up. Hardly working was, independent production made in florida with people who never made another movie um the the backers and it turned out to be a hit and then he made the movie cracking up which didn't get a theatrical release um maybe it played a week in new york and la but you know it didn't play nationally it played on um on cable very early on it was it was a a uh a direct to cable movie in a sense um, that wasn't the intent when they made it. And then he had this opportunity to play a different sort of role than he had ever played. And he rightly said, you know, I don't know why people are surprised to think I can act. Did they think I wasn't acting when I played these other characters? But, you know, he hadn't done drama. He had done films in which he had scenes of pathos, which is not the same thing. And here he's playing someone who, you know, is... is there's not much character to Jerry Langford. We don't know too much. We, we see he has kind of a lonely personal life. 
and um, we see him as a professional. But then he also appears in these sequences. There's two, there's two layers of reality in that film. There's the real life of Rupert Pupkin and Jerry Langford, and then there's Pupkin's fantasies of his friendship with Jerry Langford. He's great in both of those roles. And the interesting thing is how, you know, Scorsese and De Niro, because they, they really are the people who chose him and, and worked with him closest, how they identified him as a potential, you know, cast member and how they got what they wanted out of him. Um, it was very fortuitous. And it didn't lead to a lot of work. It didn't give him a revival. He had a, an arc in the TV show Wise Guy with Ken Wall about um, an undercover cop. He played a garment district businessman who was being threatened by the mob. And, um, you know, he never, he, he didn't really get a, a second career out of it, which is, you know, in retrospect, it's kind of a shame because he showed real range. Yeah, he totally did. And some of the, I mean, that's probably one of my favorite performances of him. And I guess it is because he is able to be all of those things to be who he is in quote unquote real life and then to be who he is in Rupert Pupkin's eyes, which I find to be fascinating. All his scenes are opposite, either De Niro or Sandra Bernhardt. And he was uncomfortable in both, both uh, relationships, both, you know, um, within and within character and, and, and sort of, he got along with De Niro and Scorsese as colleagues. He did not get along with Sandra Bernhardt. She still talks about how difficult Jerry was, but, you know, he, he was out of his element. And they kind of used that, you know, De Niro and Scorsese did. But at the same time, he gave them exactly what they needed. Whatever it took for them to get it, he, they got it. Was it in your book that I read about um, De Niro kind of needling him before some of the scenes would go on? Yeah, well, the, 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 explosion, the explosion scene the, um, where Rupert invades his house on Long Island. Um, De Niro, you know, he wasn't giving them what they wanted. He was, he's, Jerry's not, you know, a trained method actor. Um, he's directed himself in not quite half, but maybe half the films he's appeared in. Um, so, you know, he only has his own taste to, uh, to satisfy. And De Niro goaded him and poked at him. And, you know, according to Jerry, and De Niro did not deny it, he, he said anti-Semitic things to get Jerry angry, and uh, they got the explosion that they wanted, you know. And for De Niro and Scorsese, that's what that's what they want. They want the real moment. Their 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 tip their their post method, you know, capture reality um, artists. And Jerry was more, you know, began in the era where you built something and you performed it, whereas De Niro is from the era where you study something until you can be it. And um, they they had to push Jerry to get him to where they, you know, for those scenes, that long sequence, they had to get him to, to a level that he wasn't uh, achieving on his own. So De Niro, by all the accounts that I've ever come across, and now I've written about it in two separate books, really, really let him have it. And Jerry finally responded. Yeah, it's fascinating that you are writing this uh, book about De Niro now. So I'd like to ask you kind of from the other side of things, as far as where King of Comedy for you fits into De Niro's body of work. That was still a stage. This was um, a couple of years after Raging Bull. And if De Niro, you know, had fallen into a crevasse on Mount Everest, the after King of Comedy, you know, you would have had this guy who was in movies for about 10 years and had played an astounding variety of roles 
including this weird comic role. You know, last night I was uh, online looking for for some pretty obscure films, and and I wanted to see what else Amazon might recommend for someone who was looking for this film. And for some reason, they recommended um, Inside Lewin Davis. And I noticed that the film had, you know, an average user rating of three stars and many one-star reviews. And for me, it's a masterpiece. It reminded me of the reception of King of Comedy, that at the time, people were like, I don't like any of these people, and it's depressing, and it's weird. And yet, when we look at it now, we're like, oh my god, the audacity of this movie, and the craft of this movie, and the places it takes us, and the prescience of this movie, that, you know, before the age of the internet, and um, really, you know, not long after the... uh, the stalker era, you know, it's only a couple of years after John Hinckley shooting the president. It's handling all these things that still feel so contemporary. Remember, this movie's 31 years old, and it still feels very contemporary. And in De Niro's case, it was like he and Scorsese, they had made together in a decade up to this point, was it five films? I think they go on to make two films. Yeah, so they made five of their eight films. At that moment, you know, they're, they're joint collaborations. And it's the, it, it's the one that doesn't fit in. It's non-ethnic. Rupert Pupkin, you know, is vaguely Jewish, but he's not, you know, he's not as Jewish as Jake LaMotta is Italian or Johnny Boy Ciavello is Italian. Travis Bickle is not ethnic. You know, there's, there's something about that character that, you know, it's fascinating and repulsive at the same time. In a way, it's, it's perfect to have Jerry Lewis in that movie because it feels kind of, like that same sort of tension where you want to see him, but you don't want him too close. I love that they there are, you had mentioned, um, you know, the way that Jerry acts, the way that De Niro acts, and then having Sandra Bernhardt in that mix just kind of is even another more volatile chemical that gets added to the entire mix there. Why do you think that uh, she and Jerry didn't necessarily get along on that film? I mean, Jerry is still talking shit about female comics to this day. Last week, was it, that they put his hands at Grauman's Chinese Theater again? He had remarks about women comics. It bothers me, just as I'm sure you see an actor or an actress that annoys you, and you have no idea why. But I cannot sit and watch a lady diminish her qualities to the lowest common denominator. I just can't do that. 18th century mentality. I don't think at that time he respected her like professionally. I mean, 10 years on, when I interviewed him, he was still trash talking her. And she, you know, for her part, you know, she got along with De Niro. She got along with Scorsese. And here was this guy. She's, she's approximately my age. She grew up watching him and he was awful to her. So he, she had a terrible experience. In the end, I think it served the film um, because, you know, this woman, this girl is crazy and has kidnapped him um, and is like doing this strange sexual role play with him while he's strapped to a chair. So um, the fact that they didn't get along, you know, added some frisson to the scene. But um not everybody who's encountered Jerry Lewis comes away with the impression that he's a nice man. She she worked with him and had that impression. So he 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 was not he was not in a place in his life or or in fact as a person ever where a powerful young woman with confidence about her sexual presence and you know a, com- a comic mind was going to gain favor with him. 
when it comes to the king of comedy, I just recently rewatched uh, Taxi Driver, and that discomfort that I feel with Travis Bickle as being this kind of deluded uh, loner who has all these fantasies, the fantasy of of Betsy and all this, and you know, rewatching that. I had never really thought about the end of the film that much as far as how much of that is reality and how much of that could be fantasy and Betsy getting back in his cab really to me, you know, seeing King of comedy just the week before again, it was just like, okay, I can see that as being this, you know, fantastic element of, of uh, taxi driver that I never really considered before. W- what's your take on the end of taxi driver? Oh yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the movie literally begins and ends with close-ups of Travis Bickle's eye. That makes me feel like the whole movie takes place in his head. Theory in theory. In theory, we could say that. And I think, you know, you could argue that all of King of Comedy takes place in Rupert's head. Rupert may not get into that limo at the beginning. Um, and, you know, we don't know how much of what happens after he's arrested, after his, his performance is real and how much is his fantasy because we've bled back and forth between the two levels of, uh, consciousness so frequently. So I think, I think that's an interesting thing for Scorsese. As a filmmaker, you know, having grown up on, on French New Wave and, and you know, uh, post-neorealist Italian cinema to play with levels of reality. Um, you know, you look at a movie like Blow Up that Scorsese would have seen a bunch of times when he was a film student. Um, and, and I think that's, that's right up his street. For that matter, um, Wolf of Wall Street has a similar ending, you know, where this guy is being celebrated. Jordan Belfort is being celebrated by, you know, people at a, at, at a, uh, a seminar that he's putting on. And, um, we don't know if it's true. I mean, you know, it's the things that have happened are so unreal that when we see something like it at the end, we don't know if it's true. And I think, I think that's an ongoing theme in Scorsese. When it comes to the relationship between Scorsese and De Niro, why did it end? I'm not sure it has. They made three films together. In the 90s, Goodfellas, Cape Fear, and Casino. And Scorsese has a more restless muse than De Niro. Scorsese wants to make one of every movie. I'm still waiting for him to do an outright Western. We have the scene in the desert in Casino is the closest he's come. But he knows so much about the genre. Um, a Western and a war movie. You know, I'd love to see him do those things. And I think as they went on... Um, Scorsese was interested in stories for which De Niro didn't have, um, in, in which De Niro didn't have a, a place appropriate with his position in the film world. He couldn't be the leading man in The Aviator. He couldn't be the leading man in, in Shelter Island. That said, De Niro turned down the role of Bill the Butcher in Gangs of New York, and he turned down the role of Jesus in The Last Temptation of Christ. So they could have made 10 films together by now if he had worked in those films. And they've come close a couple of times, including currently, to making other films together. They talk about um, a mob film about Jimmy Hoffa based on a memoir called I Hear You Paint Houses that would have Joe Pesci, Al Pacino, and De Niro in it. And De Niro, to this day, keeps saying that he wants to, you know, they've made eight movies together and he'd like to get to ten because he's kind of, that kind of strikes him as, as, as a perfect number. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say today that it won't happen. Everybody loves a clown, so 
We're back. Thanks again to Sean Levy for taking the time to talk to us about Jerry Lewis. You can find out more about Mr. Levy over at his website, seanlevy.com, and we'll have a link, of course, over to that via our website, projection-boot.com. We were talking this week about King of Comedy, which was really one of the few flops that Scorsese made in his career. The other notable one is New York, New York, which was also made with Robert De Niro. In between these two was Raging Bull, perhaps their greatest success together. So what do you guys think about the whole Scorsese-De Niro connection? I mean, they've done eight films together now. Apparently, they're hoping to do some more. Scorsese has kind of changed up his muses, I would think, to uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. But uh, what do you you think about the Scorsese-De Niro connection, Skiz? It always seemed like the two of them did their best work together. Scorsese's made other great films that De Niro wasn't in, but when you think of his best films... Most of the time, he's in those films. And then, same with De Niro. When you think of his best films, they're, they're usually Scorsese films. Are you not a big fan of Analyze This and Analyze That? Nah, didn't see either of them. Oh, <laughs> man. Them both. You're missing out. Now, you know, De Niro, of course, was great in Brazil. Oh, and if I can make a connection between Brazil and King of Comedy, Arnon Milchin, the producer. Same producer. I don't know if there's really any more connection than that. I mean, to me, Scorsese and De Niro together is like... You know, Fellini and Mastriani, it's Kurosawa and Mufune, it's, you know, uh, Fukuzaku and Saguaro Bunta. I mean, it's like, these are the go-to guys. Like, when they're going to make a film, they go to these people, they know they're going to get great performances, they're going to make something really good. So, the only thing I can hope is that if he brings him back to work on another picture, that, you know, it'll, it'll be at that level. I mean, Scorsese's never really disappointed me. Meaning that I've never gone in to see one of his films and go, oh my God, that was horrible. It's always been, I'll see something and go, eh, yeah, it just didn't, like, certain things didn't quite work for me. But stack it up against what anyone else, his contemporaries are doing right now, it's always head and shoulders above anything else. Yeah, I have to say that when you look back at the same generation of guys that were making movies when Scorsese was, he's still very vital. You know, there are some filmmakers that came out around the same time, either through the Corman School or through USC or whatever, and maybe they're not doing as great of work as they used to. But he's definitely one of the elder statesmen, but at the same time, he's still pushing the envelope, which I really appreciate. You know, I, I wasn't a huge Wolf of Wall Street fan, but I definitely saw some good in it and i was just glad to see that um he still had the vitality to make something like that but when you go back even even to hugo which i think was one of the worst marketed films ever and when i finally saw it i was like oh okay this is a movie that i'm actually going to like and it's not a movie about a boy and his robot there are very (laughs) few films where i walk out and just say yeah no that one wasn't for me other than like uh i think age of innocence is the one that always comes to mind when when i think of disappointing scorsese films i was going to bring up age of innocence too as as the the biggest disappointment and then hugo is one of the biggest surprises the other thing i also appreciate about him and this goes beyond his his films his actual films he makes is his work in the late 70s and into the early 80s when he was starting to bring attention to film restoration and things like that because he saw how these prints and negatives were starting to fall apart and he has that whole film foundation where he does all that stuff and when we talked to Robert Downey Sr he was you know very laudatory you know Mr Scorsese helped me you know keep these underground films that I made 
you know, from disintegrating and things like that. And and also his interest in, in foreign film. I remember one of the best sort of um, series of on film that I had ever seen was one that he did. I think it was called a personal journey through cinema or something like that. And it was like uh, maybe 10 hours and it was like narrated and, and led by him. And he would talk about all these movies like throughout history and why they were important to him. And the one thing that I really appreciated about that series was he went all the way up to where he started making film. He said this at the beginning, he goes, I'm not going to talk about my movies and I'm not going to talk about anyone who is making movies today or the people that I make movies with who are friends of mine. I can't criticize sort of the era in which I'm in. So all of his stuff was basically like late 60s back, which was fascinating. And it was a broad range of stuff. And I would say that more than any sort of contemporary filmmaker today, this is a guy who knows a lot about you know, Italian film and foreign film in general. I mean, even, you know, Asian film and, and some stuff. Uh, Criterion just put out this box set where he has, like, films from Senegal on there. So this is someone who's who's smart, who, who does his homework, and he knows he knows about the history and the art, which is great. Scorsese always strikes me as something of a sponge when it comes to movies because, I mean, we, we talked last week about Blast of Silence, which he has been very vocal about over the years as far as this is a great film, more people need to see it, all this kind of stuff. You know, we're talking next week about Boss Nigger, and I know, I bet you dollars to donuts that Scorsese has seen that film. He's probably seen almost every Fred Williamson movie there is. And it's just this bizarre kind of thing where he is high art and low art. You know, there's nothing that, to me, kind of escapes his radar when it comes to film. I loved back in the, I want to say it was in the early 90s when I was working at Blockbuster that there was a whole series of films that was coming out on video that he was doing. And there were things that had never been out on video before. Uh, in particular, I remember Force of Evil with John Garfield. And that was one of several films that he had kind of put his stamp on. And again, I think it was one of those things, Rob, that you were talking about where he helped restore this film. And he has been very vocal over the years. I remember several times when uh, AMC, back when it used to actually show movies commercial free, when he would be on there talking about film restoration and how important it was and doing the whole like comparison of you know an unrestored film versus a, a re-restored film and showing the cans of the nitrate film and all these things that are disintegrating. So he has been so vocal about this, and I think even if he wasn't making movies and making really good movies, that he would be such a valuable resource to the world of film just from all of the uh, stuff that he's done as far as restoration. Skiz, I want to ask you to tell me a little bit about your pride and joy. Oh, my pride and joy. Have I shown you my pride and joy? <laughs> One of my favorite gags <laughs> in the film. Yeah, same here. I, I carry that gag in my wallet at all times, and it's oh, it comes in handy pretty frequently. I had a friend, Mark Harp, who was a uh, sort of legendary underground musician in Baltimore. He passed away almost 10 years ago, and that was one of his favorite jokes. And at his wake, they had a stack of those cards for people to take to remember him by because he loved that joke so much. So that's where I got my card from, and I, I quickly laminated it, and it's been in my wallet for the past 10 years, almost 10 years. And, uh, yeah, I get a lot of mileage out of that joke. It's it's a great joke. You don't ever tell anybody you can keep that. No, I want to keep mine. I, I wish I'd grabbed a whole handful, but I didn't want to be greedy. Such a stupid joke, but I love it so much. Does it still work? Because I don't even know if they sell pride and joy anymore. <laughs> 
it still gets a laugh. But yeah, I was wondering that too. I don't know. Well, I don't know that I've ever bought either. One of the films that this reminded me of, although a really bad version of it, and it also stars Robert De Niro, is The Fan. Oh, God. With, uh, was that Wesley Snipes in that one? Well, here we are with the hopes and dreams of all true Giants fans, ex-brave center fielder and league RBI champ Bobby Rayburn. In the game of life, Come on, bring it, baby. some are chosen for greatness, while others can only watch. Bobby Rayburn was San Francisco's brightest star. Bobby, a lot of people in this city think you're not earning your keep. But to one fan, he meant so much more. A fan. Watch out for me, I'm the sharpest guy in town. People are scared of you, Gil. Who never stopped believing. I know what he's feeling. Hit a bad patch. We all hit bad patches. Go easy on him. You're letting the bat swing him. I'll send your head into the outfield. Always watching. Locker room. Uh, Bobby Raver, please. Yeah, this is Bobby. Hello. Hello. Waiting for the chance <laughs> to be a part of his life. What do I say? Oh, you know, I was just there. You would have done the same thing. The star. You like baseball? Well, I'm not obsessed with it or anything. At least you're not one of them diehard, you know, baseball fans. Why's that? Because those guys are losers. And the fan, Bobby, destined. How do you think you got out of that slump, Bob? I just stopped caring, man. You stopped caring? To share the spotlight. Hey, Bobby, Sean, say hello to your father. He's on the phone. Curly. Bob? I don't think this is a good idea. You don't think at all. You're just a lucky idiot. What do you want from me? Don't you talk back to me. You show me some respect. Without people like me, you're nothing. I want you to hit a home run for me, Bob. I can't believe you're serious. I'm serious as a heart attack, Bobby. So, Bobby, I'm watching you. And if that pitcher goes easy on you, I'm going to hurt your kid. Every time I think of you, they're going to think of me. Oh, God, please, don't do this. Hey, Bobby. I'm telling you, he's in the stadium. <laughs> Now do you care? Yes, Robert De Niro plays an obsessed sports fan who's obsessed with his with the ball team, and I believe they're in the playoffs or the World Series, and he is starts stalking Wesley Snipes' character. It gets to the point where he, I believe it's like near the end or at the end, he's like out on the field with a gun, and he's got a gun on Wesley Snipes' character. I only saw it in the theater. I think it came out when I was in high school in the mid-'90s. It's forgettable for a reason. But to me, I I thought to myself, I'm like, when did De Niro sort of play a character similar to this? And it was the fan was the only one I could think of. But in that one, it's not funny. It's much more like um, like we talked about a week or two ago. It's, it's almost on that level of like Harvey Keitel and Bad Lieutenant, where it's not as desperate as Harvey Keitel and Bad Lieutenant, but it's that kind of attitude. It's that kind of like dark, uh, nasty kind of character. We get the idea with Rupert Pupkin that, yeah, okay, he can kidnap people and stuff like that, but I don't think he would kill him. With the character that De Niro plays in The Fan, he, he would definitely take someone out if he wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because uh, Harvey Keitel and 
the bad lieutenant is always talking about Daryl Strawberry. It's like just pushing it a little bit further and having him take the strawberry out if he's going to you know, continue to win the series. The Fan is not the movie with Patton Oswalt. No, that one's called Big Fan, and that one's amazing. So that's another one that's sort of like King of Comedy. But that one is dark, too, where Patton Oswalt is this sort of lowly security guy who works at the, you know, the parking lot taking tickets from people. But he's a huge football obsessive, like just amazingly f- obsessed about football and specifically his team. And I think it's the Giants in that film. And he gets to a point where he wants to, like, take out the guy on the rival team, which I think is someone on the Eagles and he starts stalking him and, and doing all this stuff, and that's really dark. And it's brilliant to watch because you you really get a feeling that Patton Oswalt, like when I saw that one, I feel this guy's an amazing actor. And whenever he shows up and stuff, I, I think he was really good, even though um, I, I thought he was really good in Young Adult, although overall the film isn't all that great, but he's probably the best part of it. Any other films that it reminds you of? Stalker films, uh, obsessive with celebrity, and yeah, I think most of the sort of stalker films are not related to celebrity more than they are about romance, you know, sort of fatal attraction or single white female kind of thing, where it's someone trying to take over someone's life or persona in some way to to get something that they currently don't have. Have you seen? I think we're alone now. That would be a good documentary version of this kind of idea that I think people who watch King of Comedy should see. Yeah, that one, well, yeah, that that made my skin crawl. It's about fans of the 80s pop idol Tiffany, and specifically one guy who's so obsessed with her that it's it, it is it is Rupert Pupkin. It really is. Like this is a real version of it and it's so uncomfortable to watch because the guy is so deluded and his interactions with her are so uncomfortable to watch, but he just, he can't, it's like, he's never going to get that this person is not interested in even talking to him, you know, beyond like the, you know, hi, how you doing kind of stuff. It is just, um, it, it's an incredible documentary if you haven't seen it. And it, it is very, uh, uncomfortable to watch. I love the one scene where he's, he's, I think he's reading like a uh, form explaining how he's not allowed to be within so many feet of Tiffany. And he's laughing because his name is on this piece of paper. Like to him, it's an honor because he's got his name on a piece of paper with Tiffany. You know, he doesn't quite get what the paper is saying. He just, you know, loves the connection. Tiffany and I have uh, known each other most of her life. And uh, we are in love with each other. And uh, she's a great singer. Former pop sensation Tiffany Darwish, actually I have her last name here, has been followed by one stalker for 11 years. As a 16-year-old, she was forced to get a restraining order against Jeff Dean Turner. They have my whole name in there. Then a 35-year-old, yeah, I was 35 then when that happened, fan who began pursuing her after kissing and hugging her at a concert. Didn't happen quite like that. (laughs) Then one day, she saw him outside her house. I was a little freaked out, to say the least, says Darwish. (laughs) I sat in the corner saying, close all the windows. Now she's back in Southern California, and so is her stalker. (laughs) I think my favorite part of King of Comedy is when he is 
totally immersed in that fantasy world and we're outside of it, you know, because sometimes we see Rupert Pupkin when he's in the fantasy and he's, you know, having the conversations with Jerry and everything. And the other times that we see him when he's out, when we're outside of that and he's having those conversations with the cardboard cutouts of like Liza Minnelli and Jerry Langford. Hi, Eliza. Good seeing you. Gerald, good seeing you. Jerry, don't get up having such a great time having these imaginary conversations with these people. And I think that's also my favorite part because that's when we get to have Martin Scorsese's mom yelling (laughs) at Rupert. And that's always like, as I'm sitting here in the basement recording this podcast, I always, you know, want to do that. Mom, take it easy. Lower it. I'm I'm not going to lower it. I have to do this now. I don't mind you playing it, but lower it. So it's just something pathetic about sitting here with the headset on and, you know, speaking. At least I have you guys on the other end of the phone, but, you know, there are times where I have to do this alone, which is really creepy. See, I think that actually, as this is going on in the basement, she's upstairs having dinner with Joe Pesci and Ray Liotta and Robert De Niro (laughs) at the same time. It's amazing. Tell me, tell me, where have you been? I haven't seen you. I haven't even, you haven't even called or anything. Where have you been? Mom, I've been working nights. And? Um, well, tonight we were out late. We took a ride on the, out to the country, and we hit one of those deers. That's where the blood came from, I told you. Jimmy told you before, I want to say. Anyway, you know, it reminds me, I need this knife. I'm going to take this, it's okay? Okay, yeah, just need it for bring it while. back, though, you know. Well, the poor thing, you know, we got, I hit him, and his, uh, we hit the deer, and his paw, what do you call it? The paw, the, the paw, paw the, foot. The, the hoof. The hoof got caught in the grill, oh. I got I to gotta hack it off. Ooh, come on, it's a sin. You're going to leave it there, you know. So, anyway, I'll, I'll bring your knife back if they do that. Anyway. Delicious. Delicious. Thank you. Why don't you get yourself a nice girl? I get, get a nice one almost every night, ma. Yeah, but get yourself a girl so you could settle down. That's what I, I mean. I settle down almost every night, but then in the morning I'm free. I love you. I want to be with you. I'll just settle down. <laughs> How's your friend, Henry, there? Henry, what's the matter? You don't talk too much. What you talking a little bit? Be quiet for me. You don't eat much. You don't talk much. Uh, I'm just listening. What's the matter? Something wrong with you? You remind no. me of when we were kids. Comparis used to visit one another, and there was this man. He would never talk. He would just sit there all night, and not say a word. So they said to him, "What's the matter, Comparis? Don't you talk? Don't you say anything?" He says, "What am I going to say? That my wife two times me?" So she says to him. Shut up, you're always talking. <laughs> but in Italian, it sounds much nicer. Who you know? knew the content? Yeah, that's it. What's that mean? Who knew means he's, he's content to be a jerk. Ah. Well, and he doesn't care who knows it. He's did, content. Uh, did Tom ever tell you about my painting? No. Look at this. Ah, it's beautiful. Yeah. I like this one. The dog, one dog goes one way and the other dog goes the other way. Well, one is going east and the other one is going west. So what? And this guy's saying, what do you want from me? Guy's got a nice head of white hair. Look how beautiful with the dog. It looks the same. They, yeah. Looks like somebody we know. Without the beard. No, it's him. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's him. Holy. <laughs> we are going to take another break, and we'll be back after a preview for next week's show. They call him balls. They rode into a white man's town, bringing black man's law. He's black. He's brutal. He's boss. 
Fred Williamson is Boss Nigga. I just swore in your new deputy and made myself the sheriff. He, he just locked up the bank president. Part legend, part devil, all man, boss nigga. Fred Williamson is boss nigga. Nervio Martin is deputy. They call him boss. Ages admitted. Parental guidance suggested. That's right. We're back next week, and it's all about Boss Nigger. We'll be joined by Fred the Hammer Williamson and badass mofo David Walker. But before we go, we want to thank this week's special guest, Sean Levy, as well as our special guest co-host, Skiz Sizzik. Now, Skiz, last time you were on the show, we were talking about a movie you co-directed called Hit and Stay, fabulous piece, documentary people should check out. What's the status on that, and what else have you got going on over there in the land of Baltimore, Charm City? Well, Hit and Stay has now been on the festival circuit for over a year. We've done over a dozen festivals and won a handful of awards. There's a new development that I'm not sure I'm allowed to talk about yet, but it's exciting. And if you go to our Facebook page and like us, you'll get to hear a uh, what I hope is a very happy announcement real soon. In the meantime, I've been working on another documentary called Ice Pick to the Moon about Fred Lane and a short animated section of that really the only part of the film that I finished, I threw credits on and I've been sending that around as if it's a short film and that's been getting into festivals and it, it just got into, uh, Annecy, which is like one of the major animation festivals in the world. So, uh, hopefully in June I'll be going to France, seeing my film on the big screen in another country. Those French have a different word for everything. Omelette du fromage. Remember this though, when you go to France, that second toilet that's in the bathroom, that is not a water fountain. Just so you know. Words of advice from Mr. St. Mary. He knows these things. Well, thanks again, Skiz, for coming on the show. And we will have links posted on our site, projection-booth.com, where you can keep up with Skiz, keep up with Hit and Stay, keep up with all kinds of stuff, as well as leaving feedback over on our site and uh, listen to our archives, hear old shows that Skiz has been on. You've been on quite a few, so it'll be great. People can go back and hear the Crime Wave episode, Hit and Stay, Gosh, what, we've done a whole bunch of stuff together. Grace of My Heart, Forbidden Zone, there were some others. And others, all available yeah. at projection-booth.com. And remember, it's always better to be king for a night than schmuck for a lifetime. rock a your baby with a Dixie melody When you croon Croon a tune From the heart of Dixie Just hang my cradle Mammy mine Right on that Mason Dixon line Swing it from Virginia to Tennessee with all the love that's in ya. Weep no more, weep no more, my lady. Sing that song for me. So soft and low, 
just as though you had me on your knee. A million baby kisses I'll deliver the minute that you sing the Swanee River. Rockabye, your rockabye baby with a Dixie melody. identifies himself as the king cards upside down is not allowed to be the first guest on You got a blank card. Hold on, Brett. I'm reading from two cards. Tonight's show. You will never see me go back alive again. It's not grammatically correct, but I think you have the idea.
Mom! What is it? Please stop calling me. 